So for myself, just a quick introduction, you know, Jeremy built a social enterprise, exited, uh, built a second company, now at Monksville Ventures, head of strategic projects, looking at Southeast Asia and, you know, the regionals growth and so on and so forth. You know, Forbes 30 under 30, have an MBA, I run a podcast at jeremyal.com where we discuss some additional stuff and they're going to be extraordinary experts on the fintech space. We want to make it spicy, as spicy as we can. So, Xiao, why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself and then, uh, and then King, right? And again, if anybody wants to ask questions, just raise your hand. Hey, everyone. I look at the early stage venture across Southeast Asia, India. also do LP investments, mostly in the U.S. now. I'm angel investor before that, operator before that, lawyer and firefighter before that. Yeah, I'm actually here with my, my co-founder, Diego. Also, he's, uh, his, his phone is getting fixed, but uh, so he's also joining the call. For me, I was in EV and then now I'm just doing a little fintech, a little open finance fintech with my, with my buddy. Diego, you want to say something? Hi, hi guys. Hi, how are you doing? Awesome. So, fun fact, uh, Chai and I have played Live for Dead 2 together several times and Kang as well. So, first up, this, let's ask the question, is fintech overhype? Chia, is your VC approach, you know, just totally overhype? Oh, I thought we were doing Southeast Asia startups. <laughs> yeah, both of them, you know, Southeast Asia and fintech. How about that intersection? Two very different things. No, fintech is great, guys. Build fintech companies. I have a lot of thoughts on the other topic. So we can take it in two ways. I definitely don't think fintech's overhype. I think it's a, it's a great way to make money in shallow markets. I do have some thoughts about how the tech scene in, in Southeast Asia has developed, um, how prices uh, have, have gone on a very interesting trend, et cetera, et cetera. But depending on where you want to take this, Conroe, Jeremy. Let's talk about fintech first. So what's interesting about it? And then we'll zoom into Southeast Asia. Yeah, so before I joined Saison, I was more of like a marketplace consumer investor. I did a bunch of stuff on that side. And about the time when maybe a year or two when general marketplaces and e-com in general was like pretty mature. And so a lot of people were being less and less interested in e-com and marketplaces in general. And so when I joined Saison, like December 19, uh, which was a fintech bias fund, we look at about 50% of our portfolio is fintech, but we do a bunch of other stuff. I remember a lot of folks I was talking to at the time was like, oh, you're in a fintech fund. Uh, isn't payments done? I thought payments is super boring. And, and that was kind of most people's image of, of what fintech was. And I also admittedly, when I went in with less of a knowledge of fintech than I do now, also maybe had a little bit of that bias. But I think we've realized two things. I think number one, fintech is not just about payments. It's about a whole host of really, really different things. And number two, it is yeah, one of the best ways to manage to control and digitize transaction flows in a very shallow market. And so we see, especially in the post-COVID age, or at least the COVID age, like a huge resurgence of you know, fintech business models, embedded finance. Everyone's been talking about fintech. I just found out Stripe is raising a secondary round right now of like $150 billion. It's insane. And so like, I definitely don't think it's overhyped. If anything, we're very much beginning to see what the potential of fintech is in shallow markets. And I'll maybe end with one thing, which is that few like fintech experts that I really admire in the US and one of those is Max Letrin from PayPal Mafia co-founder of Firm and in the interview that he did maybe a month ago he was basically saying that after he built PayPal people were telling him oh fintech's pretty much done and he didn't want to do another fintech company and so he was considering building something else rather than a firm and this was you know 10 years ago so everyone says fintech is dead until it's not and then becomes exciting again 
you, you see the cycles and actually we haven't even really begun that process yet in Southeast Asia. So overall, really bullish. Awesome. And King, what do you think about what Chad just said? I think what Chad said made a lot of sense. But what's interesting also is we're talking about this and it coincides with Bezos stepping down. And, and in a way, if you look at how Amazon has succeeded, it's because it does both things really well, which is it does things in the physical world really well, distribution centers, trucks, warehouses, but it also does things online really well. So it has AWS and that's a monster. And I think FinTech at the end of the day is about people. You touch people's lives, you enable people to improve their well-being, enable them to send their kids to school, you enable them to attain their aspirations. And so FinTech is the kind of space where it's both you're building bits and bytes, but at the end of the day, you're, it's resulting in concrete things in real life that impact millions of people. So I think yeah, to adding to Chas' point, I think that's why it's just so significant. And that's why uh, even when I was at East Ventures, a lot of the portfolios that we worked with for FinTechs, a lot of the startups that pitched to us were also FinTech. Awesome. So again, if anybody has time to switch to questions as well, but if anybody has any questions, just raise your hand. I was add you. Idril, can you a question from you? Go for it. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing a brief overview of the fintech landscape. I think something that really caught my attention recently is the rise of like buy now, pay later fintech startup, the Tomi or Pula and all that. And I'm just wondering whether the creation and the democratization in that sense to very ordinary consumers is a good thing for the stability of the financial system. I'm not sure how sustainable this debt creation is and I'm curious to hear your, your long-term thoughts on, on this space. That's an excellent question because of context, my parent company is like a wholesale debt provider. So they're one of the larger debt providers for like fintechs in the region, building a loan book or doing any kind of lending, you typically know who we are. And so we track the debt markets really closely. And one of the things that not many people know is that for me, one of the signs of a maturing ecosystem is access to credit markets because with debt, you can power your growth far better than equity. I've, I've always been a big fan of non-dilutive approaches for founders to build companies. I think that makes a lot of sense. That keeps incentives in place, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the really interesting things about Latin America, which I like to use as a comp for Southeast Asia, is that in Latin America, they also saw this huge boom of, of startup interest. Quite a lot of American capital went into Latin America. They have New Bank right now, which is like, I think, 30 bill. New Bank, um, one of the largest value new banks in, in the world, um, coming out of Brazil. And I, I just thought that that was super interesting because there was a lot of interest in that area. But the thing that most people didn't realize was that also on the credit side, so much debt capital came out of the US that return profile for fixed income in Latin America was actually super depressed that a lot of the funds that were set up to try to capture this like Latin America debt opportunity realized that the yields were just like not good enough because like so much capital had flowed in there. And that's not what you see for certain markets. I think in India, there's still like credit crunch um, and as a result, your interest rates are still fairly high. And similarly for Southeast Asia, um, and we're still only at the beginning of it. I think to my limited knowledge that there's like only three to five debt funds that have recently come from the U.S. to look at Southeast Asia opportunities in the in the past, like, two years. Um, so to answer your question, Adriel, like, yeah, absolutely, there's a huge opportunity there. Um, and we're really still getting started. Fundamental, like, infrastructure is still being built in Southeast Asia for, the, for these credit lines. And so I'm, I'm really positive moving forward. 
Awesome. And fundamentally, at least my point of view, my quick take on this is at the end of the day, people just want to buy now. <laughs> you know? And yeah, this is an opportunity for people to reach out and get something more than they could have. And I think it's a route to deploy capital or to get loans, but you know, is mediated by the retailers that have some understanding of the consumer rather than through the incumbent banks. Because the alternative to it is really credit card debt, right? You can't open a credit card or your credit card limit is really small or that interest rates are really, really high because they can't figure out your credit history equivalent or your debt worthiness or, or your future income, whatever it is. Then this is just another route to get some cash to you in advance of that news. Yeah. Chia? Oh, yeah. I forgot the question. It was actually about BNPL. So sorry for that rant. Um, but that's something else I'm interested in. BNPL, uh, completely, uh, I'm super, super, super bullish on it. <laughs> Even though my parent company is like a credit card issuer, like I actually think BNPL will completely disrupt credit cards. And I think that's great because it's it's an option which credit cards has a role to play, but BNPL has less of a predatory brand. And I think that we see consumer behaviors in Australia and the US and adoption rate is just absolutely insane. I think some, I think in Australia, it's like 30% of Australians use a BNPL solution um, over a credit card. And so super bullish on it. Um, I think the one thing you want to think about if you're sitting in Southeast Asia is, you know, the, the key here is really like merchant contribution. And so do we have a mature enough ecosystem and who are the, who are the stakeholders that, that actually can afford uh, to do merchant contribution, aware of it, et cetera, et cetera. I've been looking at some of the volumes going through some of the, these uh, BNPL folks uh, in Southeast Asia, and it's uh, actually quite astounding. So yeah, super, super excited. Go for it, Monica. So a couple of things come to mind. I don't know how many of you have been following the UK regulator uh, who's actually stepped in um, to the very highly lucrative as well as bludgeoning market around uh, BNPL, which is buy now, pay later. Um, I think the recent report actually mentioned that four out of every 10 pounds spent in the UK is actually buy now, pay later in specific categories and segments. But what was really interesting was that most users actually don't know that they're signing up for buy now, pay later. And more importantly, while this product seems to be looking at uh, serving customers who are underserved in credit, it was actually the 25 to 35 uh, age category, uh, which was the largest user of these products. And while I know and I totally understand the bullish nature of the industry as well as why this is uh, of specific interest to both PEs as well as uh, products and fintechs, uh, I think there are some social and ethical dilemmas associated with the product and the overall category uh, and I'm not sure that it can be handled in a manner that can uh, actually help with reducing the interest rates therefore democratizing credit because anybody who is going to be an unregulated lender is going to look at margins and if the margins are going to be high then the end consumer is actually going to lose. So personally, for me, I'm looking at this space very uh, carefully and uh, there is a lot of risk associated with it. Coming from a very regulated industry myself, including uh, card issuance, etc., I actually look at this as a little bit of a phenomena which is going to finally settle down into the largest lenders, being the largest merchants offering this product at the point of sale. And every country will have a specific variant. So in India, for example, we have specific variants that are being rolled out by the banks. It doesn't get hyped because the top five banks have worked with the POS providers in order to roll out installments and credit options at POS based on your bank account and other profile details. So it's a very interesting field. I actually think it's going to pan out in various variants which we haven't thought about before. 
Yeah, so so agree. It's just terminology, right? I think when I when I say, talk about BNPL, I'm talking about the the equivalent of zero percent EMIs, and so I, I do see where you're coming from, right? Like I think what happened in Australia was like Afterpay had a huge amount of backlash when you had late fees constituting something like seventy five percent of their revenue rather than the merchant contribution uh, net margins, and so there was a huge backlash there. And I would agree that a heavy dependence on late fees is definitely dubious, but I think what we saw was the transition, both because of public pressure, both because of internal governance and also regulation, that you can transition into a business model where you're more dependent on the merchant contribution rather than the late fees, which I think Afterpay, so don't quote me on these numbers, but I think I was looking at the annual report for Afterpay a few months ago, and it was something like 10 to 15% was late fees, um, and then they shifted that model from, you know, 75 And so I, I do believe you could build like an ethically sustainable model um, with BNPL, 0% EMIs, late fees, etc. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I actually come from fintech from more of a crypto and, and kind of stable coin and blockchain space. But I actually appreciated this question around the, the effects on the consumer for this kind of new type of lending. Uh, I was looking at an Indo fintech P2P lender. So if they were pitching themselves, almost as in microfinance, we are giving uh, people who have no credit history the ability to take out a $200 loan that Indonesian banks would never give to them. And I'm hearing other things around. So my open-ended question is, what exactly is happening on the ground level with these followers? And I think you know, there's obviously obviously a two sides to debt, right? Debt can help people climb up the financial ladder, but it can also hurt. So, so this is sort of my open-ended question now as I'm, I'm moving more into this kind of alternate credit score phase, which, are, which clearly are the future. Yeah, I want to chip in here. I'm part of a VC fund and I'm a venture partner in my VC fund. My fund actually think is a really attractive space. And we recently actually uh, deployed uh, a deal into the buy now, pay later uh, startup uh, that is based in Vietnam. And I think that model really have much less risk. And the key difference between a buy now, pay later model versus the traditional credit cards uh, or the terminals is that the first installment with the purchase. So it's like equity or skin in the game has always been um, like a key feature in underwriting the good credits. So this space is not much different from having the skin in the game. So because of having the skin in the game, which is like 25 to 30% cash payment, at the purchase that actually makes the economics much less uh, lucrative for the fraudsters to commit fraud or default later on for for the consumer but still having really attractive uh, model for credit worthy um, kind of customers so we think it's really great customer experiences and super margin as well as really lower risk in this model so we actually invest in such startups awesome yeah i just wanted to also quickly just respond to monica tie this off and then i think rishab had a question just to kind of like close out the thread a little bit here is you know i think at the end of the day there's always scope for regulation you know i think private business has to work together with regulators and i think at the end of the day is that partnership and i think 
we want to have the best and the upside of people being able to access credit that they were not being served by the incumbents. And conversely, of course, make sure that there's no uh, predatory practices as well. And I think it's both self-policing, but as well as policing by the regulators. Now, Rishab, I think you had a question. Go ahead. I'd love to understand the panel's perspective on sort of what do you think is the future of micropayments, especially in emerging economies, right? Like Southeast Asia. In India, obviously, we've sort of, because of the UPI, it's sort of possible. But like globally, when I sort of just look at micropayment trends beyond using wallets or you go to PayPal, they charge you a hefty transaction fee. But what do you see as the future? Is this, is this something interesting that you're seeing happening in that space, especially in Southeast Asia? I, I have a few thoughts on this, but I'm actually super curious to get Kane's thoughts because this lands squarely in your space, right? I think Rishab has a good question about micropayments and the future of micropayments for emerging markets. I have a few thoughts, but it lands squarely in your space, so I'd be super keen to hear what you think about it. I mean, in terms of micropayments, they are the norm in places like Indonesia, for example. And if you look beyond just Java and you look at the tier two, tier three, tier four cities, their transactions amount are really small. And actually, that poses a lot of problems in terms of, let's say, even in buy not pay letter services, because if the average order value is low and then someone takes a cut in this BNPL service, it's very hard to generate any kind of profit margins off of that. That's why there are some other interesting models that are local to Indonesia, such as the Arisan model, where it's these communities that come together every month, or it could be a defined frequency, and then they pull their money together and they help one person buy something. Actually, that's quite interesting and it's pretty unique to Indonesia. I'm not sure if anyone has heard of that before. Yeah, so, so I think the good point from Kale. So to answer your question, Vishap, from my side at least, I, I've always been fascinated with micropayments. I punted a bit of cash into like Steam it before because I've always been super interested in the intersection between payments, incentives, and content creators. And to a large extent, wallets was meant to solve this this huge problem of low LTV customers trying to transact digitally. And then with the wallet system, you don't have to be reliant on the high fixed cost transaction fees of, of the party payment rails. So, I mean, in general, like wallets and, and there's a few other things out there that are meant to be addressing that. I do have a general problem with like with, with microtransactions in the sense that besides the fact that it's just fundamentally unprofitable, it's really rare to find a sustainable use case that really makes sense for business models centered around micropayments. And I go back to like the, the one that I was bullish on was like micro content creation. So Steam, if people don't know, it was like medium on blockchain with like crypto incentives for the for the content creators, which I thought was super interesting. But there's also this huge problem of to what extent can you really incentivize people the amounts are, are, are so small like the economics just just breaks down somewhere right so i want to be super excited about if i struggle with that killer use case especially in the case of like content like you said right so like newsletters for example you cannot practically be spending like ten dollars a month on like 100 newsletters right like i'm just waiting for like an aggregation platform where you can almost like pay per <laughs> post kind of a model right i don't know if you guys face that problem <laughs> just bring it back to fintech i think the value of microtransactions is not the microtransactions itself uh but an indicator of the, the user so i think that's why Kata Book has spent so much time expanding across India, Buku Warung and Buku Kas, is, is that they see the value in getting all these users to perform these microtransactions on their platform uh, and they offer a suite of services that surround these microtransactions. Actually, I should know this, this is really stupid, but what's the definition of microtransactions, right? Because like uh, for the MSMEs, like those aren't really microtransactions. Those are like fairly decent sized transactions. 
In the case for some of them, they are talking about they lend one cigarette, they lend a single item that's in terms of like US dollar, we're talking about cents. Do you think that counts as microtransaction? I think definitely anything below like, let's call it $5 would be a microtransaction. Then a lot of the MSME's transactions are all below $5. Yeah, I was talking about like sub $1, right? Like, for example, in India, you have Dream 11 where you sort of do sports betting and it's like 10 rupees, which is like one seventh of a dollar or something. Yeah, it's tough, right? My fundamental problem is like for domestic payments, again, to make the economics work, I feel like it has to be tied around a new way of doing things, a new economy. Otherwise, the economics just don't work out. Even then, that's me speculating that it could work out, right? So when it comes down to it, the reason digital microtransactions uh, appeared in India was really, you know, uh, a governmental uh, push, demonetization, etc., etc., And so that really pushed things along. But you also note that UPI destroyed many business models. It created a net good for the fintech economy, I think, in India, but it was also a reflection of the fact that it's just really, really difficult to try to make money off microtransactions. And to a certain extent, you see the same thing on the cross-border basis, right? I, I want to be excited. I want to make sure it, it works, but there's a part of me that just goes, okay, this will happen if uh, the MPCI uh, exports uh, UPI to, to Indo, right? Or, or you know, uh, Singapore government implements PayNow. And so that's kind of where I land. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. We have Oliver. Uh, we're catching up for coffee, uh, I think, later this week. But Oliver, you're at Google Pay. You know, any thoughts or questions on your mind? Hey, guys. Nice to meet you all here. Thanks for organizing the room, uh, Jeremy. The discussion's been super, super fascinating. And one thing I'm taking away, and, and we've known uh, this for quite some time, is it's these big leaps forward in infrastructure that unleashes you know, a lot of the potential in the market. We've seen that with UPI and uh, Adhar in India, and to a certain extent, uh, buoyed up by uh, falling data costs uh, led by GEO. Uh, so I'm super curious, where do you guys see some of those infrastructure shifts happening in Southeast Asia in the next 12 to 24 months, right? That can be immediately actionable from both a product and investing standpoint. For example, in the Philippines, we are, I think, at an inflection point because the central bank is starting to launch the local version of Adhar. And so uh, for those not familiar with Anhar, it's basically a national identity system that's like cheap, low cost, open. And so I think that will unleash a lot of like fintech uh, related products, right? In a country that for so long has been like super underbanked uh, and super buttressed like legacy banking systems. Uh, so curious if w- what other new infrastructure plays are coming up uh, across the region. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. So obviously, there's a bunch of companies out there that are building the, the backend infra. We invest in OI, the Zendit out there um, in Indonesia. But I actually think that, the, again, the main driver has to be the use case, right? Because if there's no use case really driving that, then the infra is, is, is just going to be hanging out there, right? And I the problem with a lot of these infra plays is that it typically tends to be very, very um, specific to again, a very specific use case that they're trying to do. The marketers of the world or the marketers of Southeast Asia, like Neom and, and Matchwolf and all these guys, it's great, right? And it's going to help to propel digital uh, transactions, but is it going to propel microtransactions necessarily? Not really. There's no real incentive to do so. So you just need like a, a very deep saturation of use cases and infra before we can see that happening or is, or is it just going to be a regulatory push? 
right? That, that's kind of how I see it. So for me, the, the better question is, what use cases on the B2B and B2C side are we increasingly going to see uh, coming out? And that's why, like, you now when we talk about BNPL, when we talk about, like, new backend B2B SME systems, like, that's where I come from and, and get excited by, if that makes sense or Paul said. Yeah, I think that's very true, Chia. And um, we also covered this topic a little bit. We talked about this at the last Clubhouse. We recorded that episode. is on jeremyow.com slash join. At the bottom of the page, we actually have two episodes that touch on predictions for 2021, which is, as I shared, like a good way to face plant after 2020, you know. So I think that's something to just be aware for everybody. King, what do you think about that as well? What do you think? I mean, you're definitely taking action, right, for 2021. You're directly building a startup, founded it for 2021, just got seed funded as well. So what do you think? I think it's a really exciting time. We look at like the evolution of technology. You know, the first wave was getting people on the web. And then the second wave is people doing stuff on the web. And then I think the third wave you're going to see is an offshoot of people doing stuff in the web, anything that enables transactions on the web. And I think in a lot of ways, I would love to hear what you guys think about that. But a lot of times I feel like we're still in day one. So like Unix has this thing, when you calculate when time starts, it starts in 1970, something like that. But basically what I'm trying to say is like, it feels like in terms of startups, we're just in day one. There are so many offshoots, like just for example, when Elon did the clubhouse room and the next day, the second order effects of it were Agora's uh, stock went up. And these are things you don't think about, but they're all tied together. And so it's it's very exciting, I think, uh, but also very challenging to always try and think from first principles and then later think of the second and third order effects of things that you see in the market and then how that can impact uh, you and your business. Yeah. Well, Spencer, I think the other trend we're seeing, of course, is the rise of crypto, right? I don't know if you want to call it it's adjacent to fintech, right? Or I don't even know how to describe it. <laughs> Do we call it fintech, crypto tech? Anyway, but Spencer, I know that you've been also looking and you've been building a ton of stuff, obviously, in the space. But also, I mean, you're starting to see something on the adjacent side as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, King earlier ta- uh, touched on that was kind of interesting that maybe I can just give a comment on is about I think this concept of like social investments and how I think there's an adjacent part of fintech, which is about democratizing access to being able to invest. If you look at um, how many of the tools that we see uh, that are pretty popular in the US, uh, like Robinhood, TD Ameritrade, and some of these other platforms, you see that they are really trying to help uh, you know the regular um, user, the regular person on the street to be able to access some of these financial products, you know, whether it's you know, a stock, whether it's bonds, or cryptocurrencies for that matter. Right? And I think you know companies like Coinbase, companies like uh, Robinhood are all kind of trying to do do that and trying to democratize you know, the access to financial instruments and products for users. So I think there's definitely opportunities in Southeast Asia, in my opinion, um, for some of these like, experiences. Um, I think it's still really early. Um, a lot of the products that we see in the market, let's say in Singapore, uh, give us really good access um, to stocks and financial instruments in SGX and some of the other local exchanges. Um, but I think there is definitely a lack of uh, you know education, also lack of uh, access to some of these more uh, global markets, whether it's in the US and so on. And I think definitely we can do um, a lot more. You see um, you know, companies like you know, Stash Away Singapore, uh, you know, that is doing some good job there to help with global advisory and stuff like that. So definitely there are uh, things that I think we can do uh, in the uh, in the Asia uh, fintech ecosystem to help more people get access to some of these uh, products. Just to take a contrarian view, I mean, I actually do agree with you with a lot of what you say, Spencer. My question is, Southeast Asia is also a very income unequal geography, right? We have a lot of really rich people and, and a lot of the middle income and a lot of countries that are in Southeast Asia are actually not that well-to-do, right? So we talk about democratizing 
finance, what sometimes you bump up against is that the ones with the money already actually have access. They're already very plugged into like Western uh, infrastructure, but maybe the bottom of the pyramid, middle income of emerging markets actually don't have that much disposable income to begin with. So I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, I think you brought a really good point. I think there's quite a bit to unpack here, right? One is the access which you talked about, whether it's uh, to different markets like the US market or to the European markets and so on. And the other part is just like the disposable income that you talked about. I think that is basically the quantum and size, right? And I think you, if you look at the past year of COVID and everything with the global uh, situation and so on, and with like, you know, the stock market is really increasing in valuations across the board, you find that, you know, definitely there is a certain level of inequality that have exasperated and increased over time, right? And then you see employment rates across the world also falling uh, and people are getting unemployed, people are not able to find good opportunities and so on. So you definitely see that to a point about how I think many parts of Southeast Asia, you know, people may not feel that they have enough disposable investment income or investment uh, allocation. I think that, that definitely is true. And then to the question about access, I there can be better tools to work on increasing access. I think there are many companies who are very, very, for example, US centric, uh, very, very European centric or whatever. Um, they can definitely do a much better job of bridging this, uh, you know, different kind of this market uh, in a different way. But of course, these are all things that I think are, are worth solving, right, as entrepreneurs in the ecosystem. I just want to add to what Spencer said. He's so right. I think a lot of times we see a lot of people taking stuff they see in the US and the EU and then just taking it in Southeast Asia. But oftentimes it doesn't work. And you look at access to financial services, which is something that I care a lot about. For example, again, using Indonesia's example, you more 200 million of Indonesians don't have, don't have access to a bank account. And if you think about it, everything you do nowadays requires a, a bank account. So it's very, very limiting to so many huge populations of people that don't even have access to basic infrastructure. So I think there are a bunch of fintechs trying to solve this. I recently did a podcast with Sazad from SDI Academy. So it was a Tech for Good podcast. And what was interesting was that even within Singapore, right, we don't even have to look that far into the rest of Southeast Asia. Within Singapore, with the migrant workers, for example, I think what COVID really brought out was that this community of people, while the rest of us were benefiting from a lot of the fintech services and even you know mobile application services, this community that needed those services even more than anyone else did not have access to them. And so there was a a sprint almost to, to create mobile services, app services, remittance services, for example, which is a space in fintech that's maybe not accessed that much, just for the migrant worker community that may not have access to a SingPass account, may not have access to certain digital identity that we take advantage of. So, you know, I totally just want to, to send snaps to that comment because I think we need to really broaden uh, our idea of what are the user groups that fintech can access because there's a lot of value that can be created for different communities as well. Yeah, so I think to push back on Chia, pushing back on Spencer, just because it's targeting like top of the pyramid or in the middle of the pyramid-ish, doesn't mean that it doesn't trickle down because, you know, I think as Southeast Asia continues to grow and people get richer over time, I think they're going to ascend and float into the tools and services, right? So it's not binary, like, you know, you can have the Tiger trading app, well, it's a Chinese company, Hong Kong company, but, you know, you can't have a Robin Hood equivalent. In five years' time, more people will be like, you know, stonks only go up, right? So now moving on to Alison. Alison, you had a question and then Pamela, yeah. Thank you so much for hosting this. I've been really interested in seeing how digital wallets and robo-advisors, Spencer, you mentioned Stashaway, have been progressing and would love to hear your opinions on where you see growth opportunities in these areas. 
I think, you know, definitely won't be able to speak to all the features uh, some of these products have. Um, but in terms of you know, features, some of these platforms that I've seen have uh, really interesting abilities, uh, you know, I guess feature sets to allow people to be able to dollar cost average, for example, and invest. If you look at Southeast Asia and Asia as an ecosystem, it's very real estate focused, right? A lot of you know, the conventional wisdom is, oh, if you make some money, you buy property, uh, you get, you know, real estate and so on. And I think that's uh, you know, definitely great advice and it's worked for the last 30 years. But if you look at some of the markets, uh, for example, if you compare against uh, you know, some of the other markets, markets that may not be necessarily the case. And I think some of these uh, robo-advisors definitely do provide some interesting uh, tool sets for people to be able to dollar cost average, maybe spend a portion of the income on an average basis into some of these uh, you know, financial products and so on. And hopefully that generates uh, you know, reasonable returns. But of course, that being said, they do have to make sure that they're offering products that are suitable for them. I would also love to hear Oliver's take on this because Google Pay is probably what, is it the largest digital wallet in Southeast Asia now? I know you guys have been growing like crazy. I certainly don't think we're the largest digital wallet in Southeast Asia, although thank you for thinking that. I think there's something worth clarifying for most people outside of India who might not be familiar. There's actually two versions of Google Pay. One, there's Google Pay, which is like the Apple Pay of Android, right? Which is like the evolution of like the old Android wallet, which is present in like uh, 38 countries, basically a tap and pay uh, use case, right? And then there's Google Pay in India, which started out as Tez close to four years ago, which baked in a lot more functionality from peer-to-peer payments, recharging your phone, bill payments, even buying gold, all of that stuff. So that version of Google Pay uh, was relaunched in the U.S. Uh, So we launched that like two months ago, uh, and it's growing pretty well. Uh, We also launched it earlier last year in Singapore. So uh, if you're in Singapore, that's the version of Google Pay that you're seeing now. Uh, And we feel like it's still a long way to go, right? Because we are certainly playing catch up to uh, even Gojek and Grab, right? Who have uh, more well-developed wallets with like uh, multiple use cases in them. But but it's exciting. It's a space that we see a lot of growth in uh, for Google in general. Yeah, maybe I can add something here. So the super interesting thing, and we talked about microtransactions and wallets in the beginning of this conversation, and I was talking about how it solved the problem on the corporate side, um, especially when it comes to lowering transaction fees for sending, right? And something that I kind of never really realized until very recently was how wallets really serve also a super important role on the receiving side for lower income groups who actually not only use wallets uh, for receiving domestically, but it's also a super important infrastructure point for receiving cross-border payments digitally. And we see a lot of remittance growth that really comes in parallel to wallet adoption growth because you have basically people who are able to receive money digitally through these wallets and it can be like families of migrant workers etc etc so I'm not sure if that's necessarily an op I'm a little bit skeptical if it's an op per se but I thought it was a really interesting point in terms of uh, financial inclusion and general adoption awesome we're coming up on time here Pamela and then Alfonso is the last question yeah Pamela go ahead Thank you, Jeremy. So um, actually, very good discussion on the microtransactions because um, that's also one of the things that um, I'm actively working on. And I'm happy to hear Jen's perspective on it a while ago that it's everybody wants to really solve the financial inclusion for those that are underserved and unbanked. And it's really getting that right use case for it. I'm relating it with the previous topics also discussed. While Spencer said that there are businesses or companies that are being replicated in Southeast Asian countries, but 
like um, what Kang also mentioned, even similar to the Philippines, where I'm from, the number of um, unbanked population is just way too big. And we're only just scraping, I would say, slowly. The Filipinos are getting there when it comes to like financial literacy. And apart from financial literacy, now everybody also needs to learn digital literacy. So hopefully, I, I don't know how long it would take for, let's say, the Philippines and the other developing countries to be at that point wherein there's wealth management. And we would have access to, to so many financial products and services out there. But I just want to share uh, and I also want to know how it is in the other Southeast Asian countries and on what are the challenges there too because uh, for example one of the clients that I'm helping out is in the digital lending space as well and um, in the Philippines the digital lenders have a bad reputation because there have been bad practices as to collection which is like there's there's the whole shaming and some digital lending companies are calling for example people in your contact list if you haven't repaid on any of your debts so uh, I guess my curiosity would be what have been the significant challenges also for the other markets? Well, I'm aware with, of, with a couple, but it would be nice to also know what are these fintech companies' challenges. Got it. Chiao, why don't you answer that question? Go for it. Cool. I think there was a few questions there. So what's one of the bottlenecks for cross-border payments? I alluded to this a bit before. But it is a very interesting space. Really, I think it's infrastructure on the send-receive side that is the main bottleneck. I'm not talking about drivers of the company, but really institutional bottlenecks. And so I think that's definitely one. So a great adoption of wallets, a more awareness of alternative options. I think that's definitely one positive step on that side. You mentioned lending. So... I think my view for lending and greater adoption on lending, the obvious one is the lack of a uniform credit score in our region. I don't think that will be solved anytime soon, so no point really mentioning that. I do think that one of the things that actually drives the lending industry to a more ethical and also a better place for consumers is more on the regulatory side and also on the standardization of data. So regulators do take time to get up to speed with, with how they should be governing alternative lending instruments and lending platforms. And I think what you see is that once regulators have a clearly defined framework that is good for both the lenders and also for consumers, then it's a much better place to play. You see some geographies of jurisdictions where regulatory environments are unclear and, and, and that's where all all sides really suffer. So I'll pause there. I hope that answers the question. Awesome. Alfonso, go ahead and shout out to Hien, leader of Open Space. He's a great guy. Check out his fund if you haven't. Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for this opportunity. Thanks for the panel. I actually wanted to take this opportunity uh, now that I see that Oliver spoke about uh, Google Pay to ask a question about it because uh, as a product manager, it's something that has been really uh, bugging me. It's something that that I would really try to understand. How come Google decided to go for their own standalone app and, in fact, a, a specific app for Singapore, the app is like Google Pay Singapore, doesn't that create a kind of a chicken egg where it becomes so much difficult to create an ecosystem going? Because I see grab uh, QR codes everywhere. I see a lot of, like, fame. There are a lot of other means of, tra- of payment in Singapore which are very prominent. But I installed Google Pay Singapore, like, months ago, and I never used it once. Great question. Quick answer is Google Pay as an app isn't like a stored value wallet similar to like GrabPay, right? Like there's no cash in, cash out. It runs, uh, the Singapore app runs on like local rails. And that's the short answer of it, right? Like every single country in Southeast Asia runs on different rails. And essentially our goal is to build a product that can live on existing 
peer-to-peer real-time payment rails rather than building up a separate closed ecosystem altogether. So it was a very pretty nuanced product decision. And there are some trade-offs that we will obviously have to make. If you check out the U.S. version of the app, there's a little bit more functionality in there in terms of you know, personal financial management and card-linked offers and all of that stuff. But you're right. If you ask me, am I happy with the product? Of course not. There's so much more room for this to improve. Awesome. Matt, we will squeeze you in. Welcome, Hien, as well. Matt, you want to say something? No, thanks, Jeremy. I can like, you know, probably share from the, the Indonesia perspective, right? Because like, I spent my entire life here. And like, you know, specifically from retail, because like, that's what we do here. I mean, we were just like, you know, discussing another day with uh, Kevin as well. If you see, I mean, this is one of the biggest unbanked populations in the entire world even. And from the retail's perspective, we were talking about how we can actually unlock this subscriptions model in the in the retail business, right? Because like, that's just so big in the U.S., you know, health and beauty, skincare business, et cetera, et cetera. They have amazing recurring customers. It's just like, you know, because they're very simple, right? So you set a subscriptions model, lower shape class, you know, uh, Etc. Etc. And here in Indonesia, it's just impossible because the credit card penetrations here in the market is just so low. And at this point, we were talking with Kevin, you know, how we can actually like GoPay or Ovo and those kind of like you know guys can actually help us on the retail business unlocking this area with the subscriptions model. But so far, you know, it's a little bit of I would say a little bit of difficult, right? So that's what I don't know. You know, if, if anyone here you know have some ideas how we can actually do a bit of proper retail subscriptions model with the very low penetrations credit card in the market but like you know can still become a very seamless uh, journey for the customers awesome thanks uh, Matt and Kian what do you think big boss any thoughts that you have no I just jumped in I don't want to comment because I just you know the etiquettes are you come into a room late you don't know what's going on you need to ask me a question while I respond so uh, I guess uh, what's open space excited for for fintech for all these hungry people looking to found fintech invest in fintech work at fintech Okay, so I'll give you with the 30-second house view. Thanks for having me. So open space, obviously early stage series A. We've been lucky. We've done a few. So we backed uh, FinExcel, which is Credivo. That's the big one in Indonesia. We've also done InsureTech, Igloo, and we've also done uh, SME Lending, Validus, just to name three. We've always been excited because about five, six years ago, when we invested into FinExcel, Akshay said, look, I can build a credit score without using people's social media data. And to the point of the gentleman who spoke previously saying that there is a lack of a unified credit scoring system. I think we actually believe there is no need for a credit scoring system because, you know, you build FICO, then that business model is going to buy data and FICO makes money by giving you that information. Well, if Android is a platform, people give you access and you can actually track people that have a higher correlation. So I don't think actually credit scoring houses in the traditional way will ever appear. Maybe a social media company or a guy who knows how to do mobile, he'll create that. But bottom line, I think the trend is there. The wallets are going to happen. Our house views that social commerce may be a bit early because, you know, you look at King Duodua, the logistics as well as the payment systems were so seamless and WeChat powered a lot of adoption. We're seeing a lot of the social commerce guys really being more logistics players at this point in time not quite able to gamify to that level of frictionless and managing to raise a lot of money. So let's see who that goes. So there's so many places. I don't know where to start. You need to zoom me in or else I'll just keep on talking. 
Well, that's an awesome way to wrap up the one hour on fintech. We do have future episodes. It seems like there's appetite for more regular stuff. For anybody who wants to love to go around the table and say, what topics would you like to hear more in Southeast Asia tech clubs? Let's go around the table. You want to start first, chair what topics you'll be interested in? And then I'll go to King and then go down rotation. Yeah, I'm super interested in how the angel scene will transform, seeing a lot of great stuff there and uh, angel myself. So always super curious. So yeah, that's one. King? I'm interested also to explore regulation in our region. Again, going back to the theme of it's really hard to take what you see in the US, EU and replicate it here. For example, there's a lot of legislation that's not available here. Some of it's not pro startups. So I think regulation, compliance, legality would be interesting to discuss. I think separately also very interested to discuss about um, Angel. Myself also an Angel investor. So I'll be curious to see how it involves. Awesome. Adriel? Yeah, personally, quite interested to discuss and hear about how the bifurcation of technology between the US and China will have deep-seated implications in Southeast Asia. I mean, we are already seeing it, doing launch, doing payments, and so there's that fintech element as well. So quite curious to hear people's thoughts on that in future episodes. Kenneth? Actually, impact investment and the impact investment frameworks is applied to microfinance. Oliver? Well, we have 70 people in the room, so I'm super curious on how we can be helpful to the rest of the club and the community. Are you an entrepreneur looking to build a product or or raise funding uh, or someone from banking who wants to jump into fintech or uh, fresh grads finding the role in the industry? So I'm sure we can find a way to make this forum to be more inclusive of what other people need help. Awesome. I'm going to go for TKK, Alfonso, Matt, Hien, Spencer, Dimitri. Just uh, kind of keep going and then that's it. Yeah. Thanks. My name is actually Ashley, but it's okay. I go by. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Thanks for the talk. And I'm very interested in the new trends of like each of the subsector within fintech, like go by insure tech, like keeping payment tech or et cetera. So I'm interested in the new trends or in depth. From my end, it's more like where is Asia first, right? Uh, a lot of time we are followers or fast followers. I'd like to hear more about places where Asia is disrupting. Yeah, for me, like, you know, specifically, I'll stick with, like, you know, my domain here, which is, like, you know, a bit of retail. It would be, like, you know, super awesome if, like, it's actually about uh, things, right, which is the cross-border retail. So the D2C brands here in the markets, how, like, you know, we can actually, I would say, catch up with the how big the U.S. or D2C markets in the U.S. and stuff. And of course, like, you know, how's the, the, the fintech, you know, can actually really unlock the, even for those retails, right? I mean, a lot of people are doing a pay later, but like, as what I mentioned before, you know, how we can actually do this, helping this subscriptions retail model to kind of like, you know, unlocking the subscriptions retail models here in the market. Yeah. One of the things that the house is currently thinking of very deeply, or rather my colleagues are thinking of very deeply, is whether we can graduate from in-country specific models to regional models. So one of the, the things in the thesis that I think a lot of my the peer group have invested in is the logistics, right? And you can play logistics in many different ways, including, as how Ahmed said, uh, cross-border logistics. And one of the areas which we've kind of discounted, but I put it out there, and I think it's really maybe something that we're actually missing, is e-commerce enablers. So you look at e-commerce, you look at the guys in the Vietnam, Philippines, names drop me. And historically, I've always felt that those were, there was adverse selection issues. Like, for example, if you handle the L'Oreal brand, 
at scale, L'Oreal will just use their own warehouse. You lose the big customer that you've been you built your business on. So we've always been kind of like ah, e-commerce enabler is not very cool. But then you look at China, and the question I want to ask, and uh, you know, if you guys want to address it on the bottom, is that are we getting to a point where essentially we're getting so sophisticated uh, management teams capabilities that it's cheaper for L'Oreal to use an e-commerce enabler as opposed to do it in-house? And you look at the chip. TSMC started off as being an outsource provider, not TSMC is the market leader in technology. And then if you decided that I'm going to add all those e-commerce enablers across the region, I think you basically have about to launch some of these kind of big Chinese players, and then you can get to like five to $10 billion. And I think it's incumbent upon, you know, myself, I started Open Space to try and keep the capital going after I finished off as an entrepreneur. I think it's incumbent for us to really try and think about building these major companies because it is those major companies that end up being the Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. They become the flywheel of the ecosystem. And we're quite keen on trying to figure out certain sectors like can we make a regional payments? Can we do a regional logistics? Can we do a regional e-commerce player? Can we do a regional this and that? And then a lot of the questions about the heterogeneity of the region sort of disappears. So that's really sort of something that we've been talking about internally. I just wanted to share it with you guys. Awesome. Spencer, Dimitri, and then that's it for our club suggestions. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, on my end, definitely, I would love to just hear more topics and just like, you know, talk to founders and uh, hear from founders that have, you know, a very, very strong interest in, you know, in this current world, in a remote environment to build uh, teams that are tackling uh, problems, not just in Southeast Asia, but also like specifically China and the US, just seeing how, you know, we can leverage on, you know, some of these, you know, remote nature to grow businesses uh, internationally. Yeah. Awesome. And Dimitri? Yep. Yeah, Jeremy, I just actually like just jumped off the call with a bunch of people smuggling electronics into Southeast Asia from China. Fascinating talk. I just have to have a room just about that. Dimitri, just have to have a room. Hackle me, hackle me. Yes, please do. So, dovetailing on what Hian's team is thinking about deeply and Hian is thinking about shallowly. I would love a sequence of sessions about Southeast Asia's regulators and which way they'll jump next. And let's not do Singapore because I'm in Singapore jurisdiction right now. Let's gossip about Bank of Indonesia. Let's gossip about Bank Nigara, what they're trying to implement and what they're failing to implement. Would be awesome. Awesome. And Nick, I think you want to the last suggestion here. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, everyone. Thanks for um, inviting me. I'm uh, based in Shanghai and I've been following with interest uh, the discussion in Singapore. So to your question about founders that would be building businesses in relation to China, an ongoing discussion we had with uh, China-based international founders or or, uh, Chinese returnees as well is the cost of starting up in China, you know, is is basically growing exponentially and the risks of getting copied and, and of like basically having just enough runway to prove to get to a point that you get at least that minimum uh, traction is is being perceived as increasingly elusive to people here. And do you see Singapore as potentially a good hub for China ideas to get tested a little bit away from the limelight and from this like ruthless you know Chinese environment? Awesome. Thank you so much, everybody. That's the wrap of today's episode. We have a wish list and the moderators and I will just be thinking through about how we can launch more episodes and do them more frequently since there's so much appetite these days. Awesome. Good to see everyone and enjoy the rest of your lunch. That's the wrap of the episode. Thank you, everybody. See you all around. We'll be looking at taking this wish list and increasing the frequency and the depth of these conversations. Thank you so much.